For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When I asked Peter Beinart to tell me what he thought about the ceasefire agreement between Israel and Hamas announced last week, his tone was resigned. I mean, I have actually been in a Israeli shelter with my my daughter when she was younger, um, and I have a lot of friends and family in Israel. So I was grateful, but I also felt nothing had been solved. And that in all likelihood, something like this would happen again, unfortunately. So you think this ceasefire is pretty temporary? Yes, I, I think so. I mean, the structural realities are that Palestinians lack basic rights. I mean, wherever they are. Peter is a writer and an editor. But above all else, he's an unusual figure for many American Jews. He's Orthodox, has considered himself Zionist. He's also a human rights advocate, and his position on Israel has shifted over time. Having once been a staunch defender of the Jewish state, he's now something else, an interlocutor, challenging everyone around him to look closely at Israel and tell him if what they see looks fair. The people he'd really like to talk to are in the Biden administration. From the beginning, Peter's noticed Biden has seemed to want to ignore conflict in Israel, focus on COVID, focus on Asia. And all of this makes a certain kind of real politic sense, except for the fact that America is deeply implicated in this deep oppression. And then, as I said, in a situation where you have deep oppression, there's likely sooner or later going to be war. Yeah, it's hard to say. I want to stay out of it when you're actually selling the bombs to Israel to stoke the conflict. Yes. If the United States really wanted to stay out of it, that would be actually, I think, something that that some Palestinians might find quite appealing, you know, which is to don't give, give Israel the aid. Don't protect Israel and give it international impunity around the world. That would actually, in a way, shift the power balance between Israelis and Palestinians in a way that would change the whole nature of the conflict. But that's really not something that Biden ever appears to have given serious thought to. Do you think the president is going to be able to stay at a remove from this conflict? I suspect that they will try. The Biden administration is really stuck. And I think the path of least resistance will be for them just to try to put enough of a Band-Aid and just cross their fingers that something like this doesn't erupt again while he's president. Today on the show, the president might be stuck. But when it comes to Israel, there are signs that other Democrats are shifting their positions. The question is whether the left flank of the party is going to influence the White House. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next? Stick around. This episode is brought to you by SAP. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI will not help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos, but it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. 
or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks or automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology, real world results. That's SAP Business AI. Back during the Democratic primary, Peter Beinart wrote a deeply reported piece that seemed to anticipate this very moment. It was titled Joe Biden's Alarming Record on Israel. And it laid out President Biden's hesitancy around the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. In Beinart's telling, Biden's reluctance to act has been a political calculation. There just wasn't much to be gained, Biden argued, from having public disagreements with Benjamin Netanyahu or his government. And to explain his reasoning, Biden used this phrase, never crucify yourself on a small cross. It's kind of an ironic metaphor to use for, uh, for the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, conflict between Jews and Palestinians who are Muslim. But um, look, I think that in a way, I don't blame Biden. I, I blame us, which is to say Biden's a politician most of the time politicians respond to political incentives. Most of the time, politicians aren't courageous. There's this really interesting moment in when Obama was running for president, I think in 2008, maybe 2007, when he was asked by a progressive American Jew, Jew whether he would be willing to pressure the Israeli government to change its behavior. And Obama told this story in which the, the African-American labor leader, A. Philip Randolph, went to Franklin Roosevelt and asked Franklin Roosevelt to start desegregating the United States government. And Roosevelt said something along the lines of, you put 10,000 people on the White House lawn and make me do it. Hmm. And the truth is that those of us who care about the freedom and dignity of Palestinians, who believe that it is a matter of Jewish honor, that we are not oppressing another people, we have not done that yet. We have not created enough political force that changes the political calculations for Joe Biden. And although I wish that he would be more out front and more courageous, that ultimately, I think, will be the determining variable. So I guess the question now is really, are the politics changing? Because I think you could see if you were paying attention over the last week or two, various politicians putting themselves forward and making the moral case here, whether that's Senator Bernie Sanders with his op-ed in The Times, and he's been outspoken in a number of ways and has been for a long time. Is we should be bringing people together, not just being one-sided and say everything that Israel does is good, because it is not over the years. Or Rashida Tlaib, who spoke directly to the president when he was on a visit to Detroit and also spoke on the floor of Congress and spoke very movingly about her Palestinian heritage. We cannot have an honest conversation about U.S. military support for the Israeli government today without acknowledging that for Palestinians, the catastrophe of displacement and dehumanization in their homeland has been ongoing since 1948. To read the statements from President Biden, Secretary Blinken, General Austin, and leaders of both parties, you'd hardly know Palestinians existed at all. Are you seeing other things, too, that folks should be paying attention to that, that show some kind of movement? In the quote-unquote mainstream media, there's definitely a, been a significant shift. I, I think that the Black Lives Matter movement and other things have made the media more conscious of questions of representation and more, frankly, embarrassed at the historic 
absence of Palestinian voices from these conversations. And so I think you have seen more Palestinian voices in the conversation during this conflict than in previous ones. There's been so much conversation about bias, just really transparent conversations about let's really examine who's telling the stories and what are the words they're using. Yes, and that's a big deal. And you are seeing some of that filter into the more pro- most progressive members of Congress. But I'm not sold on the idea that we're necessarily seeing a fundamental shift overall. First of all, the Democrats are only one of two parties in the United States, right? And so even though there's a little bit of progressive movement happening in the Democratic Party, the Republican Party has gone way backwards. You know, 20 years ago, you could find Republicans who were willing to talk about Palestinian rights and about America pressure on, you know, George H.W. Bush was the last U.S. president to ever condition aid to Israel because he wanted to restrain settlement growth. As you know, that's completely gone inside the Republican Party. And why is that? I mean, my my understanding is that that's because the Republican Party has become entwined with these religious interests that make it make sense to align yourself with the state of Israel. But is that your understanding, too? Yes, you can say it's because of white Christian evangelicals and their influence in the Republican Party, and also those American Jews who are involved in the Republican Party who are disproportionately orthodox. Um, And so it's a powerful kind of alignment. But I think in a way, just focusing on the religious aspect is perhaps too generous. Would you say one of the things we've certainly learned in the Trump era is that when one talks about this category of Christian evangelicals, you're talking about a racial category, not just a religious category, right? And so part of what's going on is that Israel has hierarchies, ethno-religious hierarchies. You can see it most explicitly in its immigration policy, where I as a Jew could go to Israel and become a citizen tomorrow, and and virtually there's no way for a Palestinian or almost any other non-Jew actually to go to Israel and gain citizenship. That's very appealing to a lot of people in the Republican Party who are Mm -hmm. basically focused on defending a series, not the same hierarchies, but a set of hierarchies and an ethnic, essentially ethno-religious racial definition of America. Tucker Carlson said just the other day, basically, he said, you know, why can't we have an immigration policy like Israel? So there is a deep ideological association between the kind of America that many Republicans want and the kind of Israel that Benjamin Netanyahu presides over today. You've said the reason the American debate over Israel and Palestine could shift dramatically and quickly is that behind closed doors, there are plenty of politicians who are convinced already that what Israel is doing is wrong, but They just need to be convinced that they can say that out loud without hurting their careers. What is it that would convince those politicians of that? Seeing other politicians be able to do so and survive politically. I think it's really important that Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar both won their re-election challenges, for instance, even though there were a lot of people who really put a lot of effort into trying to defeat them. That's really important. I think it's possible that in the Democratic Party, you will see more people realizing that actually that this kind of APAC, you know, establishment infrastructure that they're often so afraid of actually isn't as powerful uh, as they might believe. But you have to actually go through that experience before you can believe it. APAC is the lobbying group that advocates for a strong American-Israeli relationship. And a lot of people have cited them when they talk about the influence of Israel in Washington. Do you feel like there's been any change there? 
in terms of how much influence they have in the halls of Congress? APAC's problem is that it's a bipartisan organization. It, it has to be a bipartisan organization. Its whole point is to basically ensure that U.S. policy toward Israel remains largely the same. No matter who's in power. Yes. Um, and the problem is that, first of all, it's just hard to be a bipartisan organization on anything in Washington today. I have a, a relative by marriage who was a longtime donor to APAC. You know, like many American Jews are, you know, she gave money to APAC, just a kind of a way of signaling her commitment to Israel. But one day she told me during the Trump era, she said, I talked to the person at APAC and I said, I just don't want my money going to Republicans. Um, hmm. And the person at APAC was like, well, that's our whole thing is that we give money. You know, the whole point is that it is bipartisan. And, and this was a moment where she realized that her partisanship was in conflict with her, her, her relationship with APAC. So APAC's problem is that the momentum in APAC is towards it being a more Republican organization. And it's struggling very, very hard to hold on to its democratic flank. It's talking constantly about progressive values in Israel, LGBT this and blah, blah. But the momentum is clearly for APAC to become less influential in the Democratic Party. Hmm. You know, I noticed, too, that Congressman Jerry Nadler wrote this op-ed in The New York Times over the last few days. And he was making an argument that Democrats have always seen the nuances in the Israeli-Palestinian relationship and that Democrats in Congress agree on this. I wondered if you agreed with that or whether you thought what you're seeing now is new. I mean, Democrats have seen the nuances, but the vast majority of them have basically still wanted Israel to be able to act with impunity. I mean, the really significant shift is among a small number of Democratic members of Congress, people like Rashida Tlaib, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Betty McCollum from, from Minnesota, who actually speak full-throatedly in the language of Palestinian rights and want, to, want to, the U.S. to use its leverage to change Israeli policy. We're only still talking about, you know, maybe a couple dozen or so, maybe two or three dozen of the Democrats in the House and maybe Bernie Sanders in the Senate. It's still nowhere near a majority of even the Democrats in Congress are taking this position. What will be significant is when someone like Jerry Nadler is willing to say, U.S. money should not be used to imprison Palestinian children and demolish Palestinian homes. That'll be, a, that'll be important. But we are not there yet. After the break, Peter Beinart explains why he thinks the U.S. should stop shielding Israel from international rebuke and what he thinks American Jews can do to normalize that position. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hello, listeners. I'm Gabrielle Sierra, host of the Why It Matters podcast from the Council on Foreign Relations. Look, the world of international affairs can feel overwhelming and complex. 
but it also shapes our lives every single day. So it pays to know what's going on out there. Why It Matters is a foreign policy podcast for the rest of us. And with a little bit of humor and a lot of questions, we're here to break down global topics and bring the world home to you. So join us every two weeks on Why It Matters, wherever you listen. The way Peter Beinart sees it, the problem with U.S. support for Israel is that it's been pretty unconditional. He doesn't want the U.S. to remove itself from Israeli affairs. He says certain national defense investments make sense. But he wants to see Congress attach some strings to Israel's nearly $4 billion in military aid. I would say, first of all, that there are certain kinds of practices that are simply too inhumane for U.S. money to be used for it. One would be the demolition of, of Palestinian homes. It's important to understand that the vast majority of Palestinian homes are not demolished because Palestinians have been accused of anything other than not having building permits. And you know what? They can't get building permits because when you're not a citizen, the government doesn't have any real interest in giving you a building permit. So you build illegally because that's the only way you can build. And then they show up one day and say, sorry, we're knocking down your home. The second thing I would say is that we should condition U.S. aid on Israel actually restraining, stopping settlement growth, and being open to the idea of, of a Palestinian state. I, I myself have kind of think that probably the ship has sailed on Palestinian statehood, but, but, but we should be using our, our leverage to say to Israel, if you want this $3.8 billion, then you have to change your policies. And I think this would change Israeli politics. I think that one of the reasons Benjamin Netanyahu has been so successful is he has convinced Israelis Israeli Jews that they can have their cake and eat it too. They can continue this project of basically uh, inexorably taking more and more Palestinian land and entrenching this oppression of Palestinians and pay no international price because their big friend America is, is giving them international impunity. If that were not the case, if there really were a price internationally for Israel's behavior, I think that would strengthen Netanyahu's centrist and progressive critics. You wrote a piece last year about how your views had changed and you thought originally you'd been quite in favor of a two-state solution, a Palestinian state and an Israeli state. But the more and more this conflict deepened, the less and less possible you thought that was. Why? It just came to the conclusion that the Israeli settlement enterprise, not just the number of settlers, but the vast infrastructure that Israel has built in the West Bank. And when you see it up close, nothing about it looks temporary. And so I began to fear that in continuing to use this paradigm of, of two states, we were actually kind of blinding myself to the reality that actually, actually existed on the ground. And that the paradigm, instead of being a helpful way of understanding the conflict and a potential solution, was actually becoming a way of essentially justifying this, this immoral status quo. So I basically went and spent a fair amount of time trying to think about alternatives and trying to think my way through to, to an idea of one equal state that I thought could work for both Jews and Palestinians. And I think that that scares a lot of American Jews who think that they will lose power in that situation where it's not a Jewish state, it's a state that's shared. Yeah, tell me about it. I mean, it scares me. There's a lot of trauma um, in, the, in the Jewish experience and a lot of fear. But I ultimately came to the conclusion that our fears 
are not, cannot be a moral license to crush other people. That that to me is actually antithetical to the way I understand Judaism. The, the Judaism is not, we're not simply a tribe. The Judaism has an ethical message. It, 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 it makes a case about the infinite value of all human life. The Torah doesn't start with Jews. It starts with human beings who are not Jews. Noah, Adam and Eve, these are not Jews. And the point is, many rabbinic commentators make, is to emphasize that the infinite value of all human life. So that's one, that's one reason I, I took this position. The second is I ultimately don't think that Israeli Jews will be more safe in a, in a state where they are brutalizing and dominating another people and making their lives utter hell. Because then those people have nothing to lose. Yes. The harsh reality is that in virtually every movement of national struggle by people who are oppressed, there is some faction that uses violence. You know, we've sanitized Nelson Mandela, but he was not an apostle of nonviolence. He supported armed resistance. The IRA planted bombs around England. In Myanmar now, there, there are many people moving to armed struggle. The point is that there will always be some group of Palestinians who are, who are going to meet the, the violence that they experience through state oppression, through violence, unless you show them that nonviolence can actually lift that oppression. And Israel has done the opposite. I wonder if you've noticed a shift in your Jewish communities around the conflict in Israel, like your own personal Jewish communities. Because I know that you've had this multi-year shift in your own thinking, and I'm wondering if you've seen it mirrored in the people around you. Some people around me, yes. My own particular Jewish communities, you know, where I pray and, and, and tend to have my circle of friends are not really necessarily the places where you see that progressive movement as much. But I do think that you find among some younger American Jews, non-Orthodox younger American Jews, a greater willingness to, to, to rethink things because of their different life experience, because they've grown up seeing Israel as a kind of superpower, and because they've been sensitized by things happening in the United States to the plight of Palestinians. And those kids do give me some hope. I'm wondering how much you think whatever change happens now relies on American Jewish communities stepping forward and basically in some ways giving permission for politicians and other people to speak about Israel in a new way, to make space for saying things that are critical of Israel as not being anti-Semitic. Yeah, it's a bit of a paradox. So I think Jews do have this special privilege in this conversation because it's harder to call us anti-Semitic. It's certainly not impossible. I mean, a lot of people have done their best with me to call me anti-Semitic, but um, it's a harder lift if you're Jewish to be called anti-Semitic. And so I think we therefore, I think do have, I believe a certain greater obligation to try to enter into this conversation, which so many people in my experience, not just politicians, but also people in the media just avoid because they're like, who wants that headache? Who wants to be called anti-Semitic? That's, you know, that's terrible. It's funny. You're, you're characterizing people as even the media kind of making that exact same calculus that Biden was. Like, do I want to wade into this? No. Is it worth the cost? Maybe. You know, it's just interesting that that trickles down to individuals, too. Yeah. I mean, I remember when I was writing my – when I was on my book tour, which is a long time ago now, I, there was an interviewer, a prominent interviewer, whose name I won't mention, who – was so anxious interviewing me 
that they kept on re-recording their questions because they were afraid that they had inadvertently, and they asked me, do you think this is okay? Does this seem offensive? And I'm thinking, I'm the one who's making the, <laughs> you know, I'm the one who's out on a limb, but I just got a sense of that anxiety. And it, I, I really found it, I found it depressing. It really bothers me. Yeah. And Judaism is about asking questions and education and in some ways conflict whenever I think about like my own family. That's what I think about. Absolutely. Peter Beinart, I'm really grateful for your perspective. My pleasure. Peter Beinart is editor-at-large for Jewish Currents. His newsletter on Substack is fantastic. It's called The Beinart Notebook. Look it up. And that's the show. What Next is produced by Davis Land, Carmel Delshad, Elena Schwartz, Daniel Hewitt, and Mary Wilson. We are led by Allison Benedict and Alicia Montgomery. I'm Mary Harris. I'll catch you back here tomorrow. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.